Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Hello. Hi there. Welcome to another week of... It's that time. It's that time of the week again, folks. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Best Served Cold, the true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime, except today we're drinking whiskey sours. I'm switching it up a bit. We've... We're getting classy up in here. I'm Laura, one of your co-hosts, and I'm the person who keeps stealing all your missing socks. And I am Tama J. The J stands for jerk, according to Laura Bray. Oh, wow. That was unoriginal. You just stole my... Wow. I wait all week to hear these, and that's what I get. It's not even an original line. Okay, I'll do a new one then. Do it. I don't accept that. Sorry. Hi, my name is Tama J, and... The J stands for Justin Bieber Impersonator 2020. Nice. I'll accept that. Your your token has been accepted. Thank you. How's uh, your week been, Tama? Great, until I got cussed out for my segment of the show, but I mean, that can't really be helped. Well, I mean, you stole mine, but you know. Yeah. Well, whatever. Uh, apart from that, it's been good. We've... Uh, We've 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 uh, spent a few days together, um, and then you've gone off to work, and I've been working from home. We perfected the art of the whiskey sour, which is why we're drinking it tonight because we don't actually have any wine. We're um we're out of wine. We could, I mean, we could have gone and got more, but we decided we wanted to be fancy. And Tama has just this week kind of perfected the whiskey sour, and I yep. discovered that I love them. So we went for a we went for a cocktail. So welcome to cocktail hour with Tama and Laura. Wow, you just oh, necked that, mate! I'm fucking ready. You to podcast. just absolutely downed that. Well done. Let's well done, about, sir. Let's talk about some shit. Let's fucking do it. Oh, is that it? No, no. Because <laughs> no. I was like, that is like the shortest intro ever. You haven't I mean, even you asked me how my week was. How was your week? My week was okay. Just okay. <laughs> <laughs> The, no, my work is pretty deal? good. What's happening? Um, it's kind of been an uncomfortable week. If you listened to last week's episode, you would have known that I just had some very minor surgery on my sort of lower eyelid. And the surgery itself wasn't like a big deal, but the spot it's in is just like the worst spot to try and heal, I guess, because I can't sleep properly because if I turn my head a certain way, it pulls on the area and it hurts. I can't shower properly because I'm not supposed to get it wet. I can't go to the gym. I can't really like smile or laugh too much because if I laugh, my cheekbones go up and push the air. So it's just a bit of a, I'm just feeling a little bit sorry for myself this yeah. week, to be which honest. Is, you're allowed to, you have, you've had surgery, which is kind of a big No, thing. I know, but I don't want to act like I've had like my leg cut off or something. No, like I'm I mean, being a bit of a baby, but. The worst pain you've ever experienced is the worst pain you've ever experienced. So it's you not even that it's painful no, though. It's what just, I mean is you can't compare it to yeah. other people's pain because you haven't experienced it. It's just, I think, honestly, I think one of the worst things in the world, which is why water torture is such an effective thing, is just like prolonged discomfort. Mm. It will drive you nuts. Yeah. It's like that one itch you can't scratch. Yeah. Or and like, that's the other thing. It started to itch now as it's healing. Or need, need, needing to cough during like an assembly or something. Or a podcast. Yeah. Actually, that's <laughs> also. Uh, but like that that sensation of I really need to fucking cough, but I can't. 
And it's that pain of like, oh God, especially now just out in public. It's like, if you cough, you're fucking condemned. I'm terrified to cough on, um, the train. Yeah. Your computer is telling you something. I think it's saying your disc is full. Yeah, which is fine. That's fine. I think it should be all right. Okay. So we, we double checked storage and we're good to go. We're good. Because that's actually my that's actually one of my biggest fears is that we'll like record an entire episode and then Well here's the thing, we'll we'll record it and once it runs out of space it'll stop um, oh, will recording. It? Yeah. Okay. And it'll tell us we can't record any further. See, this is a good thing. I hear about people who always like forget to press record, but because of the way we have our setup, the laptop that we record onto is literally in front of us. So yeah. you can always tell if something goes wrong. Yeah, and it's always good because I can see if we laugh too hard or like someone is a bit too loud in the mic, I can see where it clips a bit. Yeah. So I can edit it afterwards in post. Good stuff. Just uh, BTS. BTS? Behind the, yeah, yeah, behind the scenes. And by the way, we also run this show like just us two. Like the sound is done. Yeah, I'm sure that's fairly myself. obvious to most people, Tama. This well, show is a. No, but I mean, like most <laughs> shows have like an audio yeah. engineer. In the show, and we we do not have that. Well, I think most like professional level shows. Um, We're professionals, fuck, bro. Are we? Yeah. Are we? Just give me a second. So, housekeeping. Oh, God, don't ever do that again. Also, just if anyone is wondering about the quality that this show is going to have, we are literally like five minutes in and we've already had to stop, and Tama's gone and made a second whiskey sour. So, (laughs) it could be very well downhill from here yeah we've we've only ever done wine on the show so we don't know what whiskey would do yeah cocktail hour yeah maybe we should do that we've been actually considering doing a patreon maybe we should have a show actually this is not a terrible idea for a monthly bonus episode on the patreon we've been considering doing a patreon for a while and we've been talking about what content would be cool we could do a mini so we could probably only do this once a month we try and memorize as many details about a case as we can and then get really drunk and we have to try and <laughs> tell the story drunk from memory. Right. That'd be pretty funny. I don't know. It would be funny. That would either be really funny or really frustrating to listen to. Yeah, but is that also really disrespectful to the cases? It is, Probably, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Okay, we're not doing that. It, what could be done is we could, we could do like follow-ups on stories we touched on like and give up little follow-up details on... Yeah things while talking about the cocktails we made for the week or month. Yeah. Anyway, that's the little uh, thing that like we'll probably at some stage be having a Patreon. So if you are interested in supporting the show Mm -hmm. in a financial way, Patreon's great because it can be such a small financial uh, commitment for people because you can start – well, we get to set the tiers. So you can literally set a tier for like a dollar a month. So it's a Mm -hmm. nice way to just, you know, support the show Show us some love, keep the lights on, all that jazz. Yeah. We have another Six Degrees of Separation story for you at the end of this episode. So after we finish our stories, make sure you stick around for that because we had a great response to last week's episode, Tom's story. So we have another fantastic story coming. And I think that's all the housekeeping. Yeah, I guess um, the other last thing would be if you're wondering what whiskey we're drinking, we are drinking Jameson. Um, oh, yeah, because we were doing that now. We were telling yeah. people what of. Also, if you never had a whiskey sour and you want to know what's in it, it's uh, whiskey, obviously, sugar syrup, 
lemon juice and egg white. And orange juice. Oh, and orange juice. If you want to juice. do uh, the variation we're drinking. Oh, is that? I thought it tasted mm-hmm. a bit different. Yeah, so you can, I think that traditionally it's just lemon juice and then you like mix around the quantities. But the way we uh, did it was mostly whiskey, a little bit of lemon and then small parts, egg white, uh, simple syrup and orange juice. Yeah. And it's very good. Well, it's that time of the show, people. Yeah. The reason y'all are here. Y'all are here. So Tama is doing a big one this week. I'm doing one that I had never heard of before, but actually has or has had enormous impacts on our current culture as well as the current uh, sort of framework of psychology. But. Actually, I don't want to ruin it. I'm yeah, just going to get into it. Get into it. So, uh, this week I'm doing the story of um, Kitty Genovese. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's Italian. Genovese. Right. And this is really interesting for a couple of different reasons, which I'll get into after. But I want to tell the story verbatim originally as it was presented. In 1964, which is when it happened. Mm -hmm. So, backstory, Catherine Susan Kitty Genovese was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1935. She was the eldest of five children in an Italian-American family and she was born as a Catholic and sort of spent her whole life as a Catholic. So in her teen years, she attended an all-girls high school in Prospect Heights where her school friends always remember her as being happy and likable and, you know, having a sunny disposition and wise beyond her years. So after witnessing a murder, her mother decides to move the whole family out of the city and down to Connecticut. And Kitty, who at this stage has recently graduated high school, decides to stay with her grandparents in the city because at this time she was actually engaged to be married and she did get married, but it was shortly annulled after she got married, which the reasons why you'll... We're going to get into it. We'll get into that. Okay, great. So she's living in the city. She's worked a few clerical jobs, which she hates, and she falls into bar work, which she finds she actually quite enjoys. And in 1963, she gets a job at Eve's 11th Hour Bar. I'm not sure if it's Eve's or Ev's. It's spelled E-V-S. Probably Ev's, I'd say. So Ev's 11th Hour Bar in Queens, and she's working double shifts to try and save money because she wants to open up her own Italian restaurant. So on March 13th, 1964, at around 2.30 a.m., Kitty leaves the bar that she's working at, gets into her red Fiat car, and drives towards her apartment in Kew Gardens. It's during this time, while she's stopped at a set of traffic lights, she's spotted by Winston Mosley, who's sitting in his parked car looking, he's out hunting, essentially, Mm -hmm. which is what he tells police. So Kitty arrives home at around 3.15 a.m., parks her car near the Long Island Railroad Station car park, which was a car park that was set up for people who worked in the city to leave their cars and commute via the subway into the city. And it's only about 30 meters away from her apartment. So she gets out of her car, starts walking towards her apartment. Mosley, who has been following her in his car, gets out and runs towards her with a hunting knife. Kitty runs towards her building, but Mosley sort of overtakes her and stabs her twice in the back, puncturing her lung. So neighbors were reported as hearing her scream 
Oh my God, he stabbed me. Help me. Robert Moser, one of her neighbors, sticks his head out of his apartment window and yells, let that girl alone. And Mosley runs off, leaving Kitty. So she starts crawling towards the rear entrance of her building. And at this stage, she's pretty she's been stabbed twice with a hunting knife so she's incredibly gravely injured she's obviously got other internal injuries but also has a punctured lung and no one comes out to help her (laughs) witnesses state they see mosley get into his car drive away and return 10 minutes later where he meticulously searches the area until he locates kitty again who is barely conscious she's managed to crawl from where he stabbed her to a rear door of the building, but sadly because that door was locked, she's not able to get in. He stabs her again several times, rapes her, steals the $49 worth of cash she has on her and runs away. So Kitty's murder gains national notoriety pretty quickly as it's reported that 38 people at the building and surrounding area witness or heard the attack and no one calls the police or tries to step in to help. Yeah, it's like the alphabet killer. Yeah. Now that's the story at a bare minimum, but there is a lot more There's we more need context. to get into. Okay. So first of all, we'll, we'll go over some like Winston, some backstory, I guess, of Winston Mosley, who because of the notoriety of this case, he doesn't really get a lot of mention, but he's actually like quite fucked up in his own right. So at the time of Kitty's murder, Winston Mosley is 29 years old. He lives in Queens and he has a wife and three children and no prior criminal record. Shortly after being apprehended by police, he confesses to Kitty's murder, stating the reason for the attack was simply he wanted to kill a white woman, (laughs) stating he preferred to kill women because they were easier targets and didn't fight back. It's later discovered that he had actually killed two other women, raped eight, and committed as many as 40 burglaries. Holy shit. In his confession to police for Kitty's murder, he was actually quoted as saying, I had a feeling this man would close his window and go back to sleep, and sure enough, sure enough he did, referring to Robert Moser. Yeah. He said, I realized the car was parked where people could see it and me, so I moved it some distance away. Mosley also said that he changed from a stocking cap to a wide-brim hat to cover his face, and then he walked back to the scene. I came back because I'd not finished what I set out to do. He found um, Kitty lying in a hallway at the rear of the building. He quoted as saying that she was twisting and turning on the floor, bleeding and still crying out for help. He resumed his attack. He's quoted as saying, and I don't know how many times or where I stabbed her, but she was pretty quiet. The other women Mosley murdered and raped include African-American woman Annie Mae Johnson, who he killed 12 days before uh, Kitty. He shot and burnt her to death. Oh, God. And this barely gets a blip in news because obviously it's 1960 and she's an African-American woman. And it's interesting, sorry to interject, but it's interesting that he crosses the racial barrier, the border. Yeah. And delves into, says he wants to kill a white woman. Because there's something we've learned from serial killers is they rarely ever murder outside Cross their... racial lines. More yeah. outside of their racial circle. Yeah. So he also stabs 15-year-old Barbara Kralik to death in her parents' home the July prior to Kitty's death. However, in a fucked up twist, he's never tried for either of these other two murders. In fact, another man, Alvin Mitchell, was actually tried 
and eventually convicted for Barbara's death after essentially being, you know, taken in by the police and beaten and coerced for a confession. Of course. Mosley was actually a witness on Alvin's side at his trial where he confessed to Barbara's murder and also gave the jury details of Barbara's death that only the murderer could have known. But it still ended up in a hung jury who were dismissed and then Alvin was tried again and convicted for the murder in his second trial. So it's like, what? What? So was he an African-American male as well? I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. Because that would be, if he is, then that would be, yeah, I would see it because the police at the time. But, like, how messed up is that? At his actual trial for Barbara's yeah, he's murder... He's like, I fucking did that shit. Alvin's lawyer has Winston come and testify, and he was yeah. like, I killed her. <laughs> and he gives details saying that he murdered her with a serrated steak knife, which, which is... only the murderer could have known. Exactly. And the jury's still like, mm, yeah. no. Like, I don't know. These guys could be coercing some shit. Yeah. So that's Winston Mosley. Okay. So going back to Kitty's story... So Kitty's story receives a whole op-ed piece in the New York Times two weeks after her death, mainly focusing on the fact that her attack is not called into the police. Talks about, you know, like the death of community and the apathy of people living in the cities and the erosion of our social niceties and blah, 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 all that sort of psychological stuff. Because you have to remember in the 60s it's a – Huge time of change as well. Oh, yeah, like a tipping point. So people are kind of obsessed with the whole, like, stereotypical nice white neighbourhood and the fact that obviously, like, think of the children. This is still a time where white-only diners were still a thing. So Kitty's death actually coins an entire terminology that for four decades was taught in US psychology books, which is called the bystander effect. So basically it goes into how people can witness terrible things and not report it or not step in and like what that says about the human psyche and all that thing. So this, the murder coins a whole movement within the psychology community, right? Turns out it's essentially made up. It's what? The story about the 38 witnesses is basically made up. It's completely fabricated. Yeah. Whoa. So, to sort of explain the inaccuracies of the article, there's a few things we need to go over. So, Kitty's murder was one of 636 murders in New York City that year. And the New York Times chooses this murder, that of a pretty white female, to run four paragraphs, like four full page, like a whole sort of page article. Mosley, who killed Kitty, had just earlier, as I said, murdered a black woman, and this received little to no press coverage whatsoever. Like it barely registers. So first of all, an important fact that is essentially erased from history. It's New York City in 1964 and Kitty is a lesbian. So keep in mind that being gay was only decriminalized in 1980. So at this time, Kitty's sexual preference is literally illegal. And it's completely erased in this article by the New York Times as is the fact that her apartment where she's murdered at, she lived at with her girlfriend, Mary Zelenko. Isn't that crazy that there's a whole thing where the sexuality was illegal? Yeah. So at the time of her murder, Mary is questioned for six 
hours by two homicide detectives following Kitty's death, with most of their questioning mainly sort of centering on her relationship yeah, and with sexuality. Kitty. Yep. And Zelenko is initially considered a major suspect for her death, oh, which kind of says a lot about the cops as well, that they kind of get these blinders on where they simply sort of decide that they want to hone in on someone yeah. and that's the person they want to... And also for the time the time period, this is this is coming at a turning point for criminology and using psycho, psychological profiling yeah. for criminals. This is uh, around about this time they were still using the whole met- methodology of it must have been a jilted lover or an admirer yeah, exactly. or someone close to them. Yeah. And it also sort of brings it brings up also the whole 38 witnesses which is what the New York Times was kind of really raving on about on. in their article they were like 38 witnesses of good samaritans who stood by and watched this woman be stabbed and raped kind of that was sort of the direction of the yeah article the article also sort of glosses over the fact that this is happening at 3 a.m. in the morning so we live in a pretty big apartment complex. You go walking around at 3 a.m., how many lights do you think you're going to see on? Not a lot. You might say one or two. You definitely would not say there are 38 people up at 3 o'clock But in even the in New York City, like 38 in, people in the same block. Well, also at this time, Kew Gardens wasn't like the... Uh, gentrified area, I guess. Gentrified metropolitan. It was a suburban area. Yeah. Like it wasn't these huge apartment penthouses it was kind of residential yeah like little townhouses yeah, little and townhouses and smaller apartment buildings yeah second of all we know that in these times we're talking about kitty is part of an enormously enormously enormous marginalized group of people yeah and you like i couldn't really find any statistics on the number of people in this neighborhood that were necessarily from the queer community but it's a fair assumption to say that if Kitty and her living girlfriend were gay, it's highly likely that they would want to reside in a neighborhood where they felt safe, where there were other people from the community that lived around. So as I said, that's an assumption of mine. I couldn't find any sort of articles that verified if there are any other people from the queer community that lived in this apartment complex, but I would say it's a fair-ish Assumption. Yeah, and the, the the thing is, you also it's hard to say because not many people were open about their sexuality. Yeah, at the time. and that also brings up the whole thirty eight witnesses who never called the police. Yeah, if my assumption is correct, you're also dealing with people who at that time were on the fringe of society and probably don't want to invite. It may be selfish to think that, but they probably don't want to invite the police into their onto their doorstep mm. because these are essentially people who are hunted by the police. Yeah, One. And- podcast I listened to about this story went into the fact that sometimes undercover cops would go to gay bars and they would flirt with people at the gay bars for hours and then once they were invited to go home with the person they'd been flirting with, they would make arrests. They would have little secret hidden compartments where they drill essentially peeping holes into men's bathrooms to try and catch men in the act of... That's the fucked up thing, is like, as a straight guy, it's fairly hard to pretend to be a gay guy. So these cops, like, going undercover would 100% be somewhat, like, 
gay. Well, that's what um, this this podcast. I'm actually gonna um, shout it out. Uh, I'm gonna give a. Well, I'm also gonna leave the link because the the episode I listened to went into a lot more detail than I'm going to about Kitty's sexuality and her relationship with Mary, and they have a lot of details more on sort of the queer community side mm-hmm. rather than the crime side. Uh, so the podcast is called You're Wrong About, and it's literally a podcast about uh, concepts in popular culture that like the bystander effect that are incorrect or you know based off essential urban legends. Mm-hmm. So I'll leave the link in our show notes for the episode on Kitty because they go into a lot more detail about the queer community side of Kitty's life, and it's it's really interesting listen. Yeah. However... There is one confirmed case of someone, and this is sort of not questionable, this is definitive knowledge, of someone who witnessed Kitty's agony and chose not to get involved, and that is Carl Ross. So author Catherine Pel- Oh, gosh, I can't pronounce this. <laughs> Try your best. Pelinero. That was good. Uh, she wrote a book about Kitty's death, and she did a pretty meticulous sort of reconstruction of the events from the night based off the witness statements from police as well as Mosley's confession about what happened. So after Kitty was stabbed on Austin Street, which is close to where an alehouse called Austin's Alehouse is currently located, she manages to crawl to her apartment complex where she lays in a hallway near her friend Carl Ross's apartment for close to 10 minutes calling for help. Holy shit. So Kitty um, lay in the hallway calling up the stairs repeatedly for help long enough for her friend, Carl Ross, whom she actually called out to by his name, to open his window, see her there, and then walk across the roof of the apartment to another neighbor's unit where they both sort of stand in the unit talking about what they should do while Kitty's outside dying in the hallway. Fuck off. Yeah. So Ross has been quoted as saying, I don't want to get involved. I think she's drunk. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. They also decided at that time to call another neighbor who lived near Kitty's apartment on the other side of the complex and asked her to check on the woman who was, quote, screaming in the hallway. (sighs) Meanwhile, while this is happening, this is when Mosley returns. He finds Kitty rapes her after slashing her throat so she'll be quiet, stabs her numerous times, mostly in the stomach, and leaves her to die. Oh, my fucking God, you idiot. So at the crime scene, they can track Kitty's movements by the bloody handprints and drag marks on the wall, indicating that she was trying to claw her way up the stairs, and some people have admitted to hearing her repeated pleas. Okay. So while the 38 witnesses thing that the New York Times sort of put forth is not necessarily factually correct, Mm -hmm. it is an accepted fact that there were definitely people who were somewhat aware and did nothing. Absolutely, yeah. So Ross does eventually call the police at around 3.50 a.m., which is half an hour after Kitty was first attacked. Uh, The police and an ambulance show up and she dies, sadly, on the way to the hospital. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit deeper into the story that was published by the New York Times, who since, by the way, have actually come out themselves 
and highlighted the enormous inaccuracies with the article and basically admitted like, yeah, we fucked up. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So the biggest, well, one of the biggest debunkers of the original article is actually Kitty's brother, Bill, who was 16 at the time of her murder and he's undergone a sort of huge investigation into her death and what happened partially to sort of, I guess, heal his own wounds because you would hold a lot of anger for those people who kind of stood by and let your sister die. They go into the reconstruction of the crime and the line of sight from sort of each apartment and how many people realistically could have seen or heard what was going on. Bill discovers that some witnesses actually did take action, including one sort of resident of the apartment who comes out of her unit and tries to help Kitty by holding her as she dies until the ambulance arrives. And a few who also did call or attempt to call the police. So many people have brought up the fact that back in those times, it wasn't really considered that taboo to beat your wife or girlfriend. And in fact, marital rape was still legal. Holy shit. So they've sort of surmised that people may have tried to call the police and had their calls written off as a domestic disturbance not worth responding to. Wow, that's fucked up. In fact, there are call logs that have one call recorded where someone calls the police and the police advise the caller that the precinct is already aware of the the attack, yet it takes police over half an hour to get onto the scene. What the fuck, man? Now, also... Another fact that blew my mind, just because you you hear about it all the time and you assume it's been around since, like, telephones were invented. Yeah. 1964, there was no 911. What? There was no 911. So not only did people not have mobile phones, they had to call, like, the operator, wait for an operator to become free the operator had to find their local precinct and then connect them to the precinct. Wow. Holy shit. I never knew that. Yeah. And in fact, Kitty's death is one of the huge driving forces that brings where people were like, maybe we should have like one number you can call to to get the police. And then 911 is brought into effect in 1968 as well as public streetlights which were not a thing at the time of Kitty's death. Public streetlights, as in just streetlights in general. I guess they would have had them around, but not everywhere. Right. Okay. Like um, in residential areas where there's roads. Yeah. Maybe like there were streetlights in really busy areas, but not sort of everywhere. Interesting. As well as uh, it brings into effect the Good Samaritan laws, which basically means you can call in a crime without being legally, like you won't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Because I think the thought process is a lot of people were scared to call it in in case they got in trouble or they were thought to be the person that did it or something yeah. like that. So as I said, there's a lot there's a lot more about Kitty's story that I found really fascinating, including her love story with Mary, which is very, very sweet, and a bit more of Mary, uh, Kitty's backstory which the podcast episode I listened to as part of my research for this story goes into a lot more detail as well as a lot more detail about the persecution of the queer community and all that sort of stuff. So I will link that in the show notes. It's very well worth a listen. And that is my story for the week. Wow, that is heavy. But it does kind of – it made me think about – 
the times where we had so our not this apartment but our last apartment there was another sort of apartment complex across the road where a couple of times we were woken up by people screaming at each other now mind you it wasn't like screams as in i feel like you can tell when someone's screaming in pain they were literally just like cussing at each other but those times like the police never showed up yeah that was always at like three o'clock in the morning and the cops never showed up. So it does sort of make you question because I guess someone says to you, you hear a girl screaming outside your apartment. What do you do? Your first response is to say, oh, well, I'd call the police. But when you actually think about it, you're like, would you? Because there's so many, I guess, parameters around social niceties. Like you don't want to be that person who calls the cops on someone who's not necessarily doing something wrong. You also don't want to get involved because I guess there's that level of fear that, well, if she's getting stabbed, like if I go outside, am I going to get stabbed? Mm. So, it- And there's also the added the added thing of you have to talk to the police and actually report. Yeah, and especially if you're someone from a marginalised community who has not had good experiences with the police, like you just don't want to involve yourself in that from that perspective. Yeah. So it makes you kind of question a lot of your... I guess, preconceived beliefs where your knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh, well, of course I would call the police. And then you actually sort of think about it and you're like, well, would I? Like, what is that trigger point for me to go, oh, this is something bad. Like, I need to call the police. Mm. But also the, the kind of arguments that we heard at our place were mostly male-to-male um, arguments. Like, I think one was a guy got really drunk and got kicked out of a party or something and was yelling at the, the apartment. Yeah. Something like that. But no, it's very interesting that it essentially coined this whole psychology study about the bystander effect. It was even called the Kitty uh, Genevieve syndrome. And it is essentially based off a story that whilst it has some factual foundations, is essentially bullshit that some journalists made up. And I also read somewhere that journalists at a rival magazine actually knew that the article was essentially bullshit but because at the time the new york times was like the publication and it had so much pull and so much power no one wanted to question anything that they'd published yeah it's it's publication suicide yeah i think about how many books are like new york Times bestsellers like exactly it's It's a it's a powerhouse it's a media powerhouse it's like being samsung and trying to say apple's a shit company yeah it's gonna fuck you over Wow. Amazing. Yeah. I, I'm i strapped in for yours. Yeah. So. Have we already gone 42 minutes? We have, yeah. Wow. I thought mine was going to be a short one. No, it's all right. I'll try to keep mine short and precise. Well, we don't, it's a good one, so I don't want you to like okay. condense it. Yeah, as, you, as you've seen from the show title and the notes, I will be talking about Madeline McCann, a very famous case that's um kind of well known but i think a lot of the points are kind of aren't so much well known it's kind of like the dingo ate my baby story it's mm. everyone knows the phrase and everyone knows the, what happened but it's the details that that kind of separate people and i guess also carol baskin's story it's well and john benet yeah people have their opinions on it and even um kendrick johnson like the 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 there's opinions on it but so um can 
Madeleine McCann was a three-year-old British toddler when she went missing in the evening of May the 3rd, 2007, during a family holiday trip to Portugal. Her parents are Kate and Jerry McCann, and they're considered suspects during the height of the investigations by the Portuguese police, but have since been cleared. And that's the biggest thing that kind of came from this story was, did the parents do it, or was it something else? There was so much evidence clearing them but there was also evidence tying them to potentially being suspects. But as we've learned from the um, the dingo and the baby incident in the crime, mm. you can be incarcerated for not even doing it. Well, I think a lot of the, quote, evidence pointing to the parents was kind of circumstantial in that a lot of people base their opinions off the way they acted. Yes. Yeah. And exactly the same as these two cases. The Chamberlain's. That's yeah. the Chamberlain and the McCann cases. It's the, how they acted. So McCann's went to the press. They, they, you know, they kind of seemed non remorseful for like what happened. It, it's, mm. it, it was very interesting. So the McCann's used private investigators in addition to the Portuguese investigation. And in 2011, they received even more assistance by Scotland Yard, which launched its own inquiry called Operation Grange. Even through the 10th anniversary of her disappearance, passed in the May 2017, Madeline is still one of the most famous missing person cases in the UK and all of Portugal. So, to give a physical description, this is what was given to police and investigators. Madeline was a young toddler with blonde hair and green blue eyes her most important physical distinctions were that she had a brown spot on her left calf and a rare dark blemish in the iris of her right eye which if you've seen the photos it's essentially like her iris is bleeding mm. out of her eye so approaching the end of a week-long family holiday in portugal the McCann family left three-year-old Madeline and her two-year-old twin siblings, Sean and Amelie, unattended in their rented apartment in the resort Praia de Luz in the Algarve region while they dined at a nearby tapas restaurant with friends at the night of May 3rd, 2007. Uh, quick side note, I love the name Amelie. I think it's a very pleasant name. Okay. Um, just wanted to... I don't Probably share not. that thought. So you don't like Amelie? No, sorry. Really, it's French. It so- kind of sounds like arm and a leg. <laughs> arm and a leg. Okay, so the McCanns were on holiday with seven other friends, eight children in total, and they began dining around eight thirty p.m. Accompanying them were two couples, uh, the Paines, who had or- originally introduced the McCanns to the other couples, Jane Tanner, a marketing manager, and her partner R- Russell O'Brien, a physician. They were on holiday with their two children and Matthew Oldfield, another physician who was with his wife, Rachel Oldfield, a lawyer, with their daughter. Jerry, Russell and Matthew all worked together over the years. The nine adults dined together most evenings at around 8.30pm at the resort's tapas restaurant and they dubbed themselves the Tapas Seven. So uh, I will be referring to them... Collectively as the Tapas Tapas 7 7 because it makes them seem much cooler than what they are. But really, they're just a bunch of fucking nerds who are like... But I so relate to that because let's be real, that would be something our friend group would call each other. Probably much more inappropriate name. I wonder if that had anything to do with the Texas 7, if it was supposed to be like a silly play. That's an interesting point. Maybe. 
like a silly play on that. They Possibly. were like, oh, the Texas 7. Ha, 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 Tapas 7. Was it around the same time? It sounds like something that nerds would do. Yeah. It sounds like something I would do, which is why I think that's probably what they did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the restaurant was about 180 feet away from the apartment complex, which was not gated and was accessible to the public. The Each parents took turns checking in on their respective children throughout the night, and it was around 10 p.m. when Kate discovered that Madeline was missing. So to give you a little bit more context on the holiday trip, so the McCanns arrived in Portugal on the 28th of April, 2007. They were planning a seven-night spring break in uh, Praia de Luz, a village within uh, Portugal that has a population population around 1,000, roughly known as Little Britain because it has a high concentration of British homeowners and holidaymakers. The, they had booked a hotel through the British holiday company Mark Warner Limited and were placed in the apartment 5A Rua de Agostino da Silva. Sorry for mispronunciation, but I am not Portuguese. An apart- apartment owned by a retired teacher. Wait, you're not Portuguese? No. Much to your surprise. You've been the listener, lying to me? Yeah. Our whole relationship? Yeah. See, when I said Portuguese, I really meant Maltese. Ah, you yeah. dirty gotcha Italian. There. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm allowed to say that because you're sort of Italian. Italian. Maltese is like... But not really. Yeah. Maltese are get, like Arabic Italian. Oh, I'm going to have like people coming for me. I'm going to get cancelled. Yeah, don't get cancelled. Fuck. It's fine... Yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll skip past it. Um, Laura would like to formally retract her previous yeah. comments about dirty we'll, Italians. We'll make a YouTube apology, which is definitely going to be insincere, but... We'll, I actually love Italian people. I think they're the best. Yeah, they make great food. They make and great food and they're just so... Great alcohol. Great alcohol and they're just so, like, friendly and emphatic. Yeah. There's even a Simpsons joke about it where Simps- uh, Homer Simpson's working for a nuclear mad scientist and he asked him what's your least favorite country france or italy he's like france he's like yeah no one ever picks the italians oh anyway sorry continue going on so they were placed in 5a rua da augustino da silva an apartment owned by a retired teacher from liverpool one of several privately owned properties rented by the company 5A was a two-bedroom ground floor apartment in the fifth block of a group of apartments known as Waterside Village, which lay on the parameter of a part of a Mark Warner's Ocean Club resort. Matthew and Roach, Rachel Oldfield were next, to, next door in 5B. Jane Tanner and Russell O'Brien were in 5D, and the Paynes and Diane Webster were on the first floor. 5A was accessible to the public from two sides, sliding grass, glass patio doors in the living room, and the back overlooked the Ocean Club's pool, tennis courts, tapas, and restaurant and bar. But when you say accessible by the public, you mean like that was their unit. So if they'd locked it, it wouldn't have... Yes. It, yeah, okay. But anyone can approach yeah. the door. Yeah, right, right. Cool. Essentially. The patio doors were accessible via a public street where a small gate and a set of steps led to 5A's balcony and living room. 5A's front door was the opposite side of the block from the Ocean Club. The McCann's children slept in a bedroom next to the front door, which the McCann's kept locked. The bedroom had one waist-high window with curtains and a metal exterior shutter. 
the ladder controlled by a cord inside the window. The McCanns kept the, wind, the curtains and shutter closed throughout the holiday. The window overlooked a narrow walkway and residence car park, which was separated by the street by a low wall. Madeline slept in a single bed next to the bedroom door on the opposite side of the room from the window, while the twins were in a travel cot in the middle of the room. There was a single bed underneath the window. See, this is the thing that's always kind of got me about mm. the McCann case, is if you are really wanting, and it's the same thing that got me about the Chamberlain case, if you're really wanting to murder your child, you just don't do it on holiday in an area that's yeah. not familiar to you. Even like In a country where you don't speak the language, Yeah, when you're on a holiday with like several other adults and your other children, it just, to me, that always just made no sense. Like, if you're going to murder your child, you do it at home when no one else is home and the area is familiar so you can... Do you know what I mean? Like, it just never made much sense to me. And it's also kind of like if we were to know a couple, like, say, our friends Joe and Lucinda. Yeah. They had a baby. They killed the baby. It's dead. Hypothetically. They, they, we hypothetically. They come would... to us and they say, uh, the baby's dead. We, we, it died from complications. We'd be like, oh, that's fucking horrible. I hope you guys yeah. are okay. We don't really look. No, I don't think police are really going to be looking into that. It just anyway. But you uh, file sorry, it. I just as had a, to like interject. But cause... you file it as a missing persons case, as in my baby is missing. So then police have to be involved. Yeah, and then they. That's the other thing is that the media storm was created by them. Yeah, exactly. They went to the press. They held yeah. conferences. Like if you've murdered your child, you want that to just kind of like you want the police to do their thing and then they can't find anything and then it just kind of like exactly. fades off into the distance and everyone forgets about it. And it's different to the Wayne Williams case in Atlanta with the with the several children, black children being murdered by a black man where he held a press conference to to assert his innocence. Yeah. Which was brought on from his arrogance and his want to attack the police for um, like this cat and mouse kind of situation. Yeah. It's different. The McCanns wanted to hold a press conference to find their fucking daughter. It just, you just would not want that no, level of scrutiny. It doesn't make fucking sense. No, at all. Sorry to keep interrupting you. That's I just, okay. This case no, no, makes it's fine. Me, Please this, interrupt me whenever you. This case you... makes me angry. This yeah. case and the John Bonet case makes me Please angry. Please feel free to interrupt me whenever you want. 8.30 at the Tapper's Restaurant. Thursday, 3rd of May, was the, was the day of the family's holiday. Um, the, the ending, I guess, week of the family's holiday, I should say. Over breakfast, Madeline asked her parents, why didn't you come when, and she referenced her, brothers, her brother here, and when her brother and I cried last night. So after the disappearance of Madeline, her parents wondered whether this meant someone had entered her child, their children's room that night. Mm. Her mother also noticed a large brown stain on Madeline's pajama top and the children spent the morning in the resort's kids club, then the family lunch at their apartment before heading to the pool. Oh, hang on. Sorry. So Kate McCann had already suspected someone had been... Sorry, I just... Connected. That was it, yeah. She'd already suspected someone had been in the room prior. Yeah. Because Madeline had been crying and had a weird stain on her pajamas. I didn't yeah. know that. That's really interesting. And there was also, I'll go into it later, but um, her father um, thought 
that he left the door askew when he went to check that the night she disappeared, um, slightly closed. Right. But the door was wide open when he went to check in on the mm-hmm. next time he checked okay. up on them. So the children spent their morning in the resort's kids' club and the family lunch at their apartment before heading to the pool. Kate took the last known f- photograph of Madeline around 2.29 that afternoon, sitting by the pool next to her father and a two-year-old sister. The children returned to the kids' club and then at uh, 1800 to 6 p.m., their mother took them back to 5A while their father went for a tennis lesson. The McCanns put their children to bed around 7 p.m. Madeline was left asleep in short-sleeved pink and white Marks and Spencer's Eeyore pajamas next to a comfort blanket and a soft toy cuddle cat. At around 8.30 p.m., the parents left 5A to dine with their friends in the Ocean Club's open-air tapas resort, uh, restaurant sorry, located at the other side of the pool. 5A lay about 55 meters, 160 feet from the restaurant, but uh, getting to the restaurant involved walking around the public street to reach the doors of the Ocean Resort and then walking around the resort to the other side of the pool, a distance of about 82 meters or 290 feet. So it kind of essentially doubles right so there's like something so like as the crow flies it's really close yes but there's like stuff in the middle that stops you just walking directly exactly yeah kind of like our complex like you can't walk through the center because there's a big fuck off pool exactly if you if as the and that's a perfect way to put it as the crow flies you can make it at 55 but it's actually 82 right okay so the top of the apartment was visible from the tapas restaurant, but not the doors. The patio doors could only be locked from the inside, so the McCanns left them closed but unlocked, with the curtains drawn so they could let themselves in that way when checking on the children. There was a child safety gate on the top of the steps from the patio and a low gate at the bottom which led to the street. The resort staff had left a note, and this is very important, in a message book at the swimming pool reception area asking that the same table which overlooked the apartments be block booked for 2.30 for the McCanns and their friends every evening for the last four evenings of the holiday. The message said the group's children were asleep in the apartments. Mm. Kate would later go on believe the abductor must have seen the note. Well, it's highly possible. And that's why I think it's important to to consider. The McCanns and their family left the restaurant roughly every half hour to check on their children. Madeline's father carried out the first check at 5A around 21.05 or uh, 9.05. Why would you do military time? I Yeah, the the source I was researching off of did military time and I'm kind of trying to like... But um, Make it fancy. Don't make it fancy when you've had two whiskeys out. 21.05 or... uh, Nine or five. <laughs> Do you know what? Someone told yes. me once the easiest way. Off. No, take two. And take the one off. Out. Yeah, well, there's no such thing as 19 o'clock. So you go, it's nine o'clock. Yeah. Which so is much why easier. I said take 12 off. Good. Yeah. Yeah, but who's. See, my fucking math stupid brain. I go, well, okay, take, take 12. So I take 10. You take two and then you take 10 off. Yeah, but it's so much easier to just take two. Okay. Anyway. The Sorry, children continue. were asleep and all was well except for the that, like I said... Um, he knows the jar, the, the exactly, jar the, was a door. The door was a jar. <sighs> the jar was a door and it was now almost wide open. He put it closed again before returning to the restaurant. So at this time, does he, he Madeline was there at this time? Yeah, she was okay. there. So 9.15 and this is what is referred to as, at least by police, the Tanner sighting. 
So, Artist Impressions of the Man Jane Tanner saw released October 2007 in Scotland Yard. Believer was an uninvolved British tourist carrying his daughter. The sighting by Jane Tanner one of the, at one of the Tapper Seven, which is why I want you to keep, remember the name, of a man carrying a child that night became an important part of the early investigation. She had left the restaurant around 9 o'clock to check on her own daughter, passing by Madeline's father on the way back to the restaurant around his 9.05 check. He had stopped to chat to a British holiday maker, but neither man recalled having seen Tanner. This puzzled the local Portuguese police, given how narrow the street was, and led them to accuse Tanner of having invented the sighting. Tanner told the police that around 9.15, she noticed a man carrying a young child walking across the junction ahead of her. He was not far from Madeline's bedroom, heading east away from the front apartment 5A. In the early days of the investigation, the direction in which he was walking was thought to be important because he was moving toward the home of Robert Murat, the 33-year-old British-Portuguese man who lived near apartment 5A and who soon became the case's first suspect. And that was the guy in the Netflix documentary, wasn't it? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. So the child in the man's arms was wearing a light-colored pink pajama with floral patterns and cuffs on the legs, similar to Madeline's. Tanner describes the man as white, dark-haired, five foot seven or one point seventy meters, tall, of Southern European or Mediterranean appearance, thirty-five to forty years old, wearing gold or beige trousers and a dark jacket, and he did not look like a tourist. Hmm. According to Kate. Tanner passed the information to the Portuguese police as soon as Madeline was reported missing, but they did not pass the description to the media until the 25th of May. Madeline's fund hired a forensic artist to create an image of the man, which was released in October 2007. Okay. The sighting became important because it was offered to investigators at a time frame for the abduction, but Scotland Yard came to view it as a red herring. In October 2013, they said that a British holidaymaker had been identified as the man Tanner had seen. He was being been he had been returning to his apartment after collecting his daughter from the Ocean Club night crochet. Scotland crash. Yard crash. Sorry, Scotland it's okay, Yard. I didn't know how that was pronounced for like the longest time. Yeah, when you think of like words like that, it looks French, and you kind of go crochet. Yeah, that's very true. Italian, whatever. Scotland Yard took photographs of the man wearing the same or similar clothes to the ones he was wearing on the night and standing in a pose similar to the one Tanner reported. The pajamas his daughter had been wearing also matched Tanner's report. Operation Grange lead director, DCI Andy Redwood, said they were almost certain that Tanner's sighting was not related to the abduction. Okay, so now we're moving on to 10 p.m., the Smith sighting. So the rejection of the Tanner sighting as a crucial uh, event to the timeline allowed investigators to focus on another sighting of a man carrying a child that night. This one was reported by the Portuguese police on the 26th of May 2007 by Martin and Mary Smith, who had been in Praia de Luz on holiday from Ireland. Scotland Yard concluded in 2013 that the Smith sighting offered the approximate time of Madeline's kidnap. The Smith saw the man around 11 p.m. on Ruda Escaloa Primera, 500 yards or 460 meters from the McCann's apartment, walking away from the Ocean Clubs and towards Rua 25 de Abril and the beach. So he was carrying a girl aged from three to four years of age. He... 
She had blonde hair and pale skin and was wearing light colored pajamas and had bare feet. The man was mid thirties, five foot seven and uh, or from about five foot seven to five foot nine, slim to normal build with short brown hair, wearing cream or beige trousers. He didn't look like a tourist, according to the Smiths, and he seemed uncomfortable carrying the child. Efforts based on the Smith's testimony were first created in 2008 by Oakley International, private investigators hired by McCann's, and were publicized in 2013 by Scotland Yard on Crime Watch. And it was around this time, too, that Madeline was reported missing. So Madeline's mother, Kate, had intended to check on the children around uh, half an hour before they reported to her, but Matthew Oldfield, one of the Tapper 7, offered to do it when he checked in on his own children in the apartment next door to 5A. He noticed the McCann's children's bedroom door was wide open again, but after hearing no noise, he left 5A without looking far enough into the bedroom to see whether Madeline was there. He couldn't recall whether the bedroom window or its exterior shutter were open at the point, and early on in the investigation, the Portuguese police, police accused Oldfield of involvement because he volunteered to do the check, suggesting that he had handled meddling to someone through the bedroom door window. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Kate made her own check of 5A around 2200 or 10 p.m. Scotland Yard said in 2013 that Madeline was probably taken moments before this. Kate recalled entering the apartment through the unlocked patio doors in the back and noticed that the children's bedroom was wide open. When she tried to close the door, it slammed shut as though there was a draft, which is when she saw the bedroom window, it showed that the shutters were open. Madeline's cuddle cat and pink blanket were still on the bed, but no Madeline. After briefly searching the apartment, Kate ran back towards the restaurant screaming, Madeline's gone, someone's taken her. At around 10.10 or 22.10, Madeline's father sent Matthew Oldfield to ask the resort's reception desk to call the police. And around 10.30, the resort activated its missing child search protocol. Hmm. Yeah, because a lot of people have uh, raised points about saying someone's taken her as being odd, as an odd thing to say. What else would you say? Exactly. She's gotten out? How? Yeah. She's a five-year-old girl. Yeah, exactly. That part's always kind of annoyed me as well because it's like, of course you're going to assume. And also I feel like most mothers, being that protective instinct, will jump to the worst conclusion because that's – your, in- your instinct is to kind of go to the worst th- thought. And you're in a foreign country too. Exactly. You don't know what the people are like, essentially. Yeah. Not to say anything wrong about the people of Portugal, but it's No, a I'd love country. to go to Portugal one day. Yeah, absolutely. We love... Some of our favorite food is Portuguese food. Very true. We live in a Portuguese area, actually, in the West. Fun, fun fact. Um, we live in Dulwich Hill, which is very... Portuguese. And, and uh, we're on the cusp of Dulwich Hill and Lewisham, which is a very Portuguese and area. Petersham, particularly. Petersham as well, yeah. yeah. And we love it. We couldn't picture a better place to sort of be in. Okay. So uh, 60 staff and guests search until 4.30 in the morning at first, assuming that Madeline had wandered off. One of them told Channel 4's dispatches that from one end of Luz to the other, you could hear people calling her name. Keep in mind, this is a short, small area, sorry, and a shortly populated area. So we're going to, I'm going to do a bit of a timeline 
thing because there's so many details regarding what happened and I could get into heavily into what happened in terms of um you know each little individual part but I think I'd rather just stick with a like a, t- a timeline and just give you a, a brief outlook so the 4th of May as Portuguese police start to their investigation the McCanns make a uh, impassioned appeal for information with Kate holding Madeline's favorite toy cuddle cat Jerry says words cannot describe the anguish and despair that we are feeling as the parents of our beloved daughter, Madeline. We request to anyone who may have information relating to Madeline's disappearance, no matter how trivial, contract the Portuguese police and help us get her back safely. Please, if you have Madeline, let her come home to her mummy, daddy, brother and sister. 5th of May, Portuguese police reveal they believe Madeline was abducted but is still alive and in Portugal. 14th of May, detectives take Anglo-Portuguese man Robert Murat in for questioning and make him an Arguido, or in uh, Portuguese, an official suspect. Mm. Um, So I want to talk a bit about um, just the the 10th anniversary of her disappearance and the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, the Netflix series. And I think I'll save most of what I have to say in regards to who they think committed the abduction of her, what happened to her fate and the theories. I think I'll save it for another episode. Yeah, because it's like the Jean Bonnet case. Like, it's such a huge thing. You could spend hours talking exactly. about it. Exactly. I think I might actually just honestly leave it there. Oh, oh, we're leaving it on so. a cliffhanger. Yeah. I'll, do, I'll finish it off next episode. So I'll get into some publications about what ha- what they th- what happened with Madeline um the developments in the case where the family's at where detectives are I kind of touch on it briefly but I want to get into it a bit more cuz there's a lot of theories around it much like the the Chamberlains and and uh, John Bonet yeah um and I think I want to do a bit more research as well. Yeah, and your the... brain can kind of start to melt if you like. Yeah, exactly. Pile on too much information. It's exactly what the John Bonnet. You need to give context before you can get into the theories and the where we're at now yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So, but I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Um, you know, let us your let us know your thoughts on. Uh, your opinions on the Madeleine McCann case. And yeah, what you think has happened because yeah. everyone has an opinion. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, it's a very interesting case. I think I was telling Laura the most depressing part about researching this case was seeing the digitally created images of what she would have looked like at different points yeah. of time. So there was some, at some point, they made images of what she would have looked like at nine when she would have been nine a couple of years later, so it would have been like four years after she was abducted, or um, and then they did another one when she was thirteen. It was just it was hard to see because you you see just such a beautiful young girl that she grew up she would have grown up to be if she never went through this horrible experience. Yeah, and that's the thing you never really think about. Like you know, we we've re- researched the Atlanta murders and the John Bonet murder and things like that, and you kind of look at these pictures of young children is fucking depressing but you never really think about the fact that this person isn't going to grow up yeah that's the saddest thing it's like the case continues to live on so it kind of makes it feel like they never stopped living but then you think it's kind of like the thing with the jean benet like her name is still talked about and her case is still talked about but the fact is that she was six when she died and her life stopped 
from that point and she never got to have a life. And exactly. it's the same. Well, I mean, they haven't, you know, I, I still hold the smallest hope for the McCanns that Madeline will be found. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're, I mean, I won't get into it now, but, but, you know, for, for their sake, I do, I do sincerely hope that they find her, but you know, it's kind of it's happened before. safe to assume. Yeah. Well, there was the, I'm probably going to say her name wrong. JC Dugard. Was that the girl that was abducted and found oh. when she was like 20 something? That's sounds about right. There's, there's been a few of those. Um, and yeah, JC Lee Dugard. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. She was held in captivity for 18 years. Holy shit. So, you know, it's a small sliver of hope, but I guess until a body is found, you have to keep holding out hope for the family that they will find her. At the very least, some sort of closure. Yeah. You can finally end the chapter of what happened to her. Yeah. That was a, that's another, we've done two kind of like very full on. Yeah. Stories quite close together. I think I'd like to go to a a good old fashioned. I, I think I said it last episode, but I think I want to go back onto a old fashioned seventies, um, eighties serial killer next episode. Well, not next episode because she left us on a cliffhanger. So no, I mean after this, that one. this Madeline McCann yeah. thing, because I think we've sort of, like I said it last episode, we've kind of been doing a lot of these recent ones, and it's. It's very interesting because it's recent and it's and it's prevalent and it's theorized, but you know, there's something almost novelesque about the murders of Ed Camper and Ed Gein. That's very true. You know what I mean? It seems like something from like an Agatha Christie novel. It, it's almost so bizarre that it's, it can't be comprehensible. And in a weird way, you can sort of like I find doing these cases also is like a bit of a like obviously we want to. Um, honor the, the the victims of these serial killers but as the presenters of the show like at the same time you can sometimes it can be a real bummer doing yeah. particularly sad cases and as you said like the the Kempers and the Dharmas of the world sometimes feel like something that's a fictional crime horror novel yeah isn't that so it doesn't feel depressing. as depressing to talk about but isn't that also just kind of odd as well that we yeah. view these stories as like a refresher compared well, to, yeah. you know what I mean? I guess that's the... You kind of separate yourself from it because it was in the 70s. Yeah. It's also the risk you run trying to do a true crime podcast that also kind of like toes the line of being comedy as well. Yeah. Like, you, you know... You don't want to make it too much of a bummer, but then yeah. you don't want to like be cracking jokes whilst you're doing the story well, because I feel like that's so disrespectful to more the so we're kind of victims. making fun of the the fact that Golden State Killer had a fucking micro penis, tiny penis. Then I want anything. that inscribed on. I don't want to be buried alive. I mean, no, buried alive. I don't want to be buried. I want to be cremated, mm-hmm. but I still want a headstone, and I want. Joseph D'Angelo had a tiny penis inscribed on my headstone. I don't, I don't want my name. I don't want the year I was born or die. I just want a headstone with Here Lies Laura, FYI, Joseph D'Angelo had a tiny penis. Yeah, amazing. Well, let's um, let's transition yeah, onto our, so my new favorite part of the show. We listened we, – I mean, we always listen to the stories – before we get given them, 
but uh, I don't. I just want to let. Um, I just want to let Jasmine tell her story. Mm-hmm. I don't want to kind of step on her because she does such a fantastic job of talking about the connection with this person as well as she very kindly did our job for us and went into the actual story and did a bit of research into this story. But this is Jasmine's Six Degrees of Separation story with a killer. Do you want to introduce who Jasmine is a bit briefly before we get into it? I think I want to do it after. Okay, cool. Well, let's, um, let's listen to Jasmine's... Uh, story about her brush with a potential murderer. Yeah, I should say potential murderer. Yeah, that's right. And Um, now. Go. Hello, friends. My name's Jasmine. I'm from the Good Old Days podcast, and I'm here to tell you about my experience or brush with a would-be slash wannabe mass murderer. This story was pretty big in U.S. and Canadian news about five years ago in 2015. And this is the story of Lindsay Saranarath and a guy I I don't know, James Gamble. It's Lindsay that I've had the brush with. She was, in fact, the year below me in high school. Some of our former classmates would disagree with me and weren't surprised to hear this story at all. For me, we weren't friends, so I guess I didn't really know what to expect. I certainly never would have thought that I would have looked at the news one day and seen a former classmate's name on the headlines to be in connection with this mass murder plot. Really, the only things I remember about her from high school, I guess remember about her in person, is that she always seemed to wear these high heels that she never learned to walk in for years, and she couldn't walk in them. And she also always seemed to wear really bright colored lipstick. So she, she stood out like you would notice her walking around throughout the school. But she mostly kept to herself. We did have some friends that were in common. But I can't say she ever came and hang out with us. She was never really at any like school events or dances or anything like that. And I can't exactly blame her on that side. We went to a very like classic white mid-class midwestern football obsessed suburban school and that's all fine if you fit into those little boxes. But most of us really didn't. To give you an idea of that, our student IDs on the back had the phone number for the suicide hotline. So there are some issues with with all of that. And I'm not faulting really any of my teachers. I had some really excellent ones. I also had some really terrible ones. And even in myself, didn't always feel supported. So for someone like Lindsay, who was a bit more of an outsider and didn't really have friends and wasn't encouraged to go to school dances and things, I could see, you know, that's a really easy starting point to be led astray, as as we'll see later, later on in this story of what happens to her. And I'm not being horrible in saying this, but she's probably not someone that I would have ever really thought about past graduation. It really wouldn't be until after I saw that first news article published or, well, shared on Facebook by one of our former classmates 
that I thought of her again. And it was talking about how she had been arrested getting off of a plane in Canada with the intent of committing a mass shooting at a mall in Halifax. It was such an odd feeling of disbelief to read that, almost jarring. This is someone I recognized, someone I had been an acquaintance of, a classmate of, and you just don't think that that's ever gonna ever gonna come into your life, I suppose. She had been antisocial, I suppose, and odd, but again, I, I wouldn't have guessed that this was something that she would have done or wanted to do. In the days and weeks that wore on from this first, I guess, article being published from the story first breaking, we would go on to talk to each other more, you know, reconnect as, as former classmates, and also read in the news and, and get a better sense of Lindsay since school. And I guess she'd really embraced this idea of neo-Nazism. And I, again, I guess there had always been an undercurrent there. Apparently, she was really into it in some of the games clubs, the, the one of the one clubs that she had joined and participated in. And she had started getting into some really dark literature um, in her writing, which was submitted to different classes and Students started finding her a little odd, I guess, when she was in her junior and senior years. This did kind of surprise me because I remember seeing jokes that had been shared from her Facebook page kind of making fun of Nazism. So I don't really for myself know where this comes from. It also surprised me because Lindsay had one parent who was from Laos. So she herself did not fit the you know, the neo-Nazi fascist, like, idea of a the Aryan race. And it was just very jarring to hear that she had gotten into that. It was almost very self-hating, I suppose. Now, from the news, we started to find out that she had fallen really into these ideas, along with becoming a Columbiner. And these are generally people who have a deep-seated interest in the shooting that happened at Columbine. From Lindsay's point of view, she was really interested in championing the shooters at Columbine. So she believed that she could get into the head of them, or, or vice versa, they were getting into her head. And she, I guess, liked the idea of committing her own mass shooting. This mixed with this idea of neo-Nazism, it's just not going to go anywhere well, as I'm sure you can already tell. This point always makes me think of something that we both would have experienced while we were in school, too. Now, of course, we both would have heard about Columbine while we were very young in school. That would have been in our memories. But also something specifically that happened at our high school was a bomb scare and I don't know why this always comes to mind when I'm talking about this story, but someone had called in and basically told the school administration that they were going to blow up bombs. I think it was in the bathrooms of the school or put them in lockers. I can't really remember that detail. But the school would respond by limiting the entrances, searching us all. It was basically chaos. I remember I'd broken my knee. It was, it was wintertime. I'd slipped on some ice, broken my knee, and they told me basically not to come to school because I couldn't run if something went wrong. So 
they really were concerned and scared. A lot of the students were scared. It was pure chaos. And I just, I always wondered if that had influenced Lindsay in some way, if she had enjoyed seeing this chaos that was brought about by this event, even though it never took place, that people were afraid and the impact that it had on everyone that surrounded her. And I want to bring this up as well. When I tell that story, a lot of people ask me if I think that she was the one who called in the bomb scare. I don't think so. I mean, there's no record of her ever talking about it or admitting to it. And I just feel like someone like her would admit to that. Through this online Columbiner community, if you want to call it that, I guess, she would meet a man by the name of James Gamble, among others, but this is the main person in the story. Now, James lives in Canada, and he shared her views and wished to also commit an act of mass violence, just like the shooters at Columbine. And together, the two are going to plot out what would eventually be called by them the the Valentine's Day Massacre. They essentially decided that they wanted to take two guns that were owned by James's family into this mall and target all kinds of people, moms with children, or Lindsay specifically had this idea of targeting people who looked like they would pass on bad traits. And again, that's going back to her sort of Nazism belief. She even, I think at one point, says that she wanted to laugh at the basic bitches as she killed them. So this is a very dark seated plan that they're coming up with. They decide to target a mall because anyone can be there and you have all sorts of people to choose from, I suppose. It's it's just so, so sickening. They also think that it's going to be a message on capitalism and consumerism if they commit this act of violence there. However, they never, ever meet and someone calls Crime Stoppers um, after seeing a post that Lindsay did on Tumblr. She apparently made this poster almost advertising their plan. There's a like photoshopped image of her and James in a mask. I think James is holding a knife or something. And it says it's going down something along those lines. It's going down Valentine's Day. Someone calls into Crime Stoppers and they meet her essentially at the airport at Customs in Canada. She'll be detained. Police try and go to arrest James as well, but he'll end his life once the police surround his home. Lindsay would say that many of her beliefs really, I guess her radicalization came from different online sites she frequented on the internet propping up like neo-Nazism, far-right ideals, and she's going to find, I guess, some form of comfort or belonging that she doesn't find in the real world. The depths of the internet is easier to relate to than trying to find some semblance of normal, I guess. And I always take this as a as a real warning. I mean, anyone could have been Lindsay, and that's not to forgive anything she's done or normalize that or make that okay in any sense. It's a horrific act that she had planned. But mental health issues mixed with being overlooked by school and society, having very few to no friends by the time that that she's planning this, 
And people always kind of finding her odd. Nothing ever goes checked. The school didn't do anything. Her parents didn't do anything. The people around her never said anything. And it's going to all kind of roll into this radicalization of herself along with the people who she's talking to who are presumably in in similar situations. It's just a wonder that this instance was caught, that she was never allowed to go forward with this. And today she's still in prison. She actually got sentenced to life with no chance of parole for at least 10 years. So that's, I believe, 2025, 2026, something like that. And she remains pretty unapologetic. She has appealed several times. I think the latest was about eight or nine months ago. And the Canadian court said they will not grant that. And she's very unlikely to get parole because she's unapologetic, just completely unapologetic, which is, I think, astonishing. She says she didn't actually go through with anything. How does anyone know that she would have, even though they have this plan and literally pages and pages of messages, her and James's relationship, if you even want to call it that, was solely on Facebook. So there are, you know, thousands of messages. And I think another really interesting point to this is their whole relationship, again, if you want to call it that, their whole interaction lasted less than eight weeks. That's all it took from going to like talking about small talk, like I think uh, another another podcaster put it as, hey, you're cute, to, hey, let's, you know, plot to go and shoot up a mall and really do some damage to people's lives. It's just, it's just incredible. I'm still, still in shock. And it's become kind of a thing again. There's a book about her, well, partially about her coming out. She pops up in the news cycle every now and then. And yeah, I hope, honestly hope that this is the only person that I ever have to brush with in my life that is capable of going forward with such a thing like this. And if if not, if she's not the only person, I really hope that other people like that person who called Crime Stoppers exist to, you know, prevent anything like this from happening in the future. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this story. It's crazy. I still can't quite believe that it happened. But if uh, you want any more details, you want to talk to me about it, you can find me on Twitter at thegoododpod.com. Or I'm sure the lovely hosts at Best Served Colds would be happy to get you in touch with me. Thanks so much for listening in to my story today. So I never really know how to respond to those stories because my first response is to be like, whoa, that's... It's an interesting cool. story. Yeah. But then I'm like, it's entirely not cool at all. But it's... I don't know. What's... How do you... See, that's the thing about doing these... This content that we do is I never know the right words to describe those types of stories. I find it very interesting that she points out that the neo-Nazism is in some form odd and contradictory being that she's not of our own race and that it could be some form of self-hatred. Yeah, but the fact that I feel like you know it's not a good time when your high school has the suicide hotline on the back of your student card. No. That uh, doesn't say great things about your school. There's many different factors into it. It's a primarily white high school. A high school where there's high suicide rate 
she's of mixed race and is an, ends up becoming a neo-Nazi. Apparently, she's not a very high, a popular high school student. Uh, not yeah. a very popular person amongst anyone. It wears high heels and bright lipsticks to to high school. To high school, but also in a way, in her public image is very important to her. The yeah, way she's perceived very is very that's important. Quite good. But that's what I mean is she's an essentially a nobody at high school, and I, I don't want to be now rude. She's gained but notoriety. That's what she was, and yeah. she's trying desperately to make herself seem seen. And this is the ultimate way to be seen: is to be well, a mass yeah, shooter of the people who idolize the Columbine shooter. That's that's aiming for that level of notoriety. And it's it's rough to say, but realistically, those kids who were responsible for the Columbine shooting and the Columbine shootings in general are immortalized. They're yeah. forever remembered. Yeah. So, like, you can see where these kids are kind of... Yeah, they, these, they think that if I do the same thing, I'll become famous. It's or... the same thing with Ed Kemper, with, with Wayne Williams of the Atlanta killings. They're all murderers who murder because their yeah. own lives were unsuccessful. So Wayne Williams was unsuccessful in his own thing and he viewed other black children as being unworthy of succeeding him. That's a very a deep analysis that you've given. But it's interesting to, to think because yeah. she's so adamant in being recognised. Yeah, for something so horrific. But I think stories like that are always very fascinating particularly for Tama and I being that we live in Australia and we in Australia have some of the strictest gun laws in the world. So I guess for us in high school, there's always kind of that like running joke that there's that weird kid like, oh, one day he'll he's a school shooter, like he'll come and shoot up the school because for us that joke is so unlikely to ever happen. So you can... Not that it's ever, not the school shooting is ever funny, but it's such an abstract concept that you can make those jokes with the likelihood that it's never going to happen. Yeah, and that's why it's a joke is because it's so And that's impossible. just so crazy to think that, not that she was in school when she was trying to commit the crimes, but it's so crazy to think that um, this person knows someone they went to school with someone who ended up attempting to do a mass shooting like for us as australians that's such a just so out there concept i don't even know anyone that owns a gun do you know know anyone that owns a gun and that's the thing there's a jim jeffries joke about it that in america you can literally go to walmart and buy a fucking handgun yeah without any paperwork when i went to america i've only been to america once but that was the strangest thing for me to try and conceptualize was the fact that literally any person that walked past me on the street could have a gun in their pocket and be completely within the law. Yeah, exactly. It's but just so, here it's, so, it's such, it's such a crazy concept for us. Here it's I can't even, a, a very rigorous uh, month by month yeah. sort of session, I've lessons, never, background I've never seen checks. a gun in real life. I've never held a gun in no. real life. I don't know anyone that's seen or held a gun in real when, life. When my parents and, and when I was living with them moved into our their current house that they live in, um, and to, to people listening, my grandparents also lived with my parents and when I was living with them, we moved into the house and we found an old shotgun in the house. It's like oh. a wooden metal kind of shotgun, like a 1910s, cool. 20 shotgun. And it was cool because it was it was sort of um, 
was sort of dismembered. It was it didn't have certain parts to it to make it a fully functioning shotgun. But legally speaking, we had to tell the police about it. Yeah. And to hand it over to the police because we're not registered to own a firearm. Even with it being inactive, it's kind of a bit of a wishy-washy thing. Yeah. But- I've also just made the decision who I'm going to cover next week. Great. Um, are you going to tell us or are you going to? I'm going to, yeah, why not? I'm going to, I'm going to cover the case that bought in Australia's gun laws. Great. Because a lot of people don't know that it was actually one event that triggered our gun laws. And I don't know if it's still, but it was one of the highest death rate, death. Yeah, I think it still is. Killer things. Yeah. He went on like a spree. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to be very careful because now we have a lot of our listenership is in America. So I'll have to be very careful not to offend anyone because I don't discriminate against your right to own a gun or blah, 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 blah. Just just going back on this, um, this, whatever guns are stupid. I'm sorry. Um, Canada mass shooter who would have been, what was her name? Sorry. Lindsay. Lindsay. I found it very interesting that she mentioned and felt the need to mention it to, police and online that she wanted to personally attack the basic bitches. Yeah, that's a very uh, that to me tells high school me, revenge. Yes. A high thing. school yeah. bully marginalized child at high school getting revenge. Yes. Because the thing is, uh, you were bullied at high school. I was bullied at high school. And yeah, we I was all like fantasized about- I was like the Australian version of the Glee kid in high mm. school. We all sort of fantasize about like getting revenge in some way, but we never think about like. Well, my revenge killing. fantasy that I always had was that I'd be really, really rich and successful. Yeah. So. And we're halfway there. We're somewhat successful with this podcast. I, I guess. mean, yeah. But uh, we should probably. I feel like we always say this, no, but no. I feel like this episode has been particularly. I can tell long. you this episode's fine. We got we got plenty of time. Oh, okay. Uh, but thank you so much to Jasmine for taking the time yeah. out of your day to record that episode. We really appreciate it. Shout out your podcast. Jasmine runs her own podcast at the Good Old Days Pod. I'm going to leave all of the links to all of the things in our show notes because I am so grateful that people actually take time out of their day to record this fast, for, mm-hmm. you know, just for our show. I'm very appreciative. So check out Jasmine's podcast. I'm going to leave all the links to the show and her socials in our show notes, as well as if you follow us on socials, I'll also be tagging them in everything. So you can follow them as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. It really... That was very... That was an incredibly interesting yeah. story. And very it's, fascinating. It's, I love stories like that because... I love to pick it apart and sort of look yeah, at well, it. Yeah, well, that's why we started doing this segment because we're both yeah. a bit obsessed with We're obsessed with the human with crime. The human mind. I really am. We've actually, we've both been rewatching Mindhunter and now we're both, well, I'm already studying. So and I'm, I'm reading I'm the book as well. not considering, but Tamu is actually at one point seriously considering studying criminal psychology, weren't mm. you? And I might still, even just for we'll the, see. Yeah, the understanding. Even just to like add a little je ne sais quoi. Yeah, to I don't the think it's something I want to p- pursue in a. In a uh, You'd be so good at it, though. Yeah. That's what we were saying, actually. In the ironic fashion, so many people who have empathy and would make fantastic police officers are the type of people who don't want to be police officers. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. 
What are you grateful for this week, Tama? Let's uh, wrap this shit up. Yeah, I am grateful that we found a new YouTuber who goes by the name of Steve. Oh, Steve, Steve the, bartender. the bartender. That's um, my grateful thing from, as well. From Ad- Oh, is it really? Yes. Okay, cool. We're, we're doubling up on the. He's from thing. Adelaide, and he's just the sweetest human being him. ever. It's where we got the uh, recipe for this whiskey sour. And we tried another thing with grapes. What was that thing called? The, the Enzoni. Yeah. That was delicious. Um, uh, thank you, Steve, the bartender, for contributing to our high-functioning alcoholism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love we, it's We've true. had two cocktail nights this week, and it's not yeah. a typical thing, but yeah. Good um, times. It was fun, though. They were delicious. Yeah. I discovered that I actually like whiskey sours, which I didn't think I would like because I hate whiskey, but yeah, it's my I new fave. mostly had a few too many because I got a bit carried away. Yeah, but you were really, you became like the cocktail queen on Tuesday mm, night. We, we we just kind of started off making a few and then... Yeah, it started off quite innocent. That it was I like just, just wanted, tasting them out. I then, just wanted to try making one. Yeah, and I was like, fuck it, let's make five hundred and... But it was fun. Yeah, but yeah, I, we're, well, that's cute. We both had the same grateful thing for this week. Mm. But yeah, check out, if you are a cocktail fan, check out Steve the Bartender on YouTube because he has some fantastic videos where he goes into, like, he'll do videos about a specific cocktail and then he'll do videos about, like, the best rum cocktails and the best gin cocktails. And it's, um, he's really, like, he's just very wholesome down-to-earth, quintessential Australian bloke, and he's just good value for mm. money. I'm probably going to buy um, some of his merch as well. He's got a few different things on his website where you can buy, like, muddlers and... And he makes his own gin. Shakers, and he makes his own gin. I love gin. Amazing. Which I've always been called an old lady for, because apparently gin is an old lady spirit. Well, maybe that just means that you're not a fucking 12-year-old. Maybe. Means I'm refined. Which, if you're American, that's a assumption. Not every twelve-year-old drinks, but because we the legal age of drinking is eighteen here, it's kind of like a running joke. Yeah, we start early. Teenager. But uh, as usual, the end of this podcast has just gotten so (laughs) off topic and rambling. We that, always that's what do this, kind of, this. But that's what this, this end segment is. That's true, and it's only the it's only the real fans. Matt, I'm specifically talking to you. Yeah, Matthew Stapleton. I want to give a quick shout out to our, our one of our best He's friends. One of our best friends. He always listens to the podcast right to the end. He's a, a true, true champion. Fan. Listens to every single episode ever, and then comes like I work with him at the same job, and he comes in every time. He's listened to the latest one, and he goes quotes. Anything to do with it. And it just and makes me feel it. it makes me feel successful. So, so thank you, Matt. We Matthew, love you. If I come into the office at some point, uh, I want you to come up to me and yell at the top of your lungs, <laughs> banana milkshakes make me hot. And okay, I'll know that you've listened to the end of this episode. Wow, we're going to have an expose on the fake friendship of Matt if he doesn't. Yeah, if you do not anyway, yell and I'll yell at you. No, I feel like we've, we're weirdly singling Banana milkshakes make okay, me hot, then you are not a okay. true friend, All right. Matt. Okay, we, we went into a weird place there. And I will not come to your wedding. This happened last, well, I mean, we're going to the wedding because we got invited. Anyway, that's again, what, like last thinks. week, this went to a weird place. 
So I'm going to make the executive decision to wrap this up and say thank you once again for tuning in to our very unprofessional shit show of a podcast. We love making it. We hope you love listening to it. We are the BSC podcast on all social medias. We are just as messy on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So follow us on all of those things. We put out new episodes every Friday, Australian Eastern Standard Time. And yeah, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.